Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. Uh, My name is Stan McMahon, and I am filling in today for Drew and John. I am from Trinity Presbyterian. uh, Just a little bit about myself. Many of you may not know about me, but I I teach full-time Bible at Lakeland Christian School and uh, just recently become a part of the part-time staff at Trinity as a pastoral intern. And I've been um, trying my hand in preaching and various other things uh, in preparation for future ministry. Uh, so it is my pleasure this morning to, to share in the Word of God with you. Uh, and indeed, we have a beautiful passage this morning, a very serious and weighty one, uh, but a beautiful one. Uh, before we look to God's Word, uh, let's look to Him in prayer. Most gracious God and Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word. We thank You, God, that it's by Your Word that You feed us unto everlasting life. We thank You, God, that... You are the vine and we are the branches, and through your word you nourish us so that we would bear much fruit for the glory of your name. I pray, Lord God, that you would be among us as a gardener among the vines this morning, that you would prune us so that we might be more fruitful, that, God, you would warn us so that in our fruitlessness we do not become comfortable and not repent. Father, we pray that you would please uh, be with me. Be with all of these people, Lord. Please lead us to the cross, as we just sang, that we might see Jesus there, high and lifted up. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had this experience, the experience of overestimating yourself in some way or overestimating your abilities in some way and then having that overestimation or misjudgment exposed. Have you ever had that experience? Uh, A trivial but, but I think very fitting example would be pep rallies. Uh, This time of year in the fall when all American minds turn to football, in gyms all across the country there are pep rallies on Fridays in in colleges and in high schools. 
And in those pep rallies, the same things are said every time, aren't there? We're number one. Uh, We're going to crush and destroy the competition. And they get all pepped up about this. But then once they hit the field, for at least half of those teams, statistically, that hope, that pump up is going to be let down a long way. Um, especially for my high school, I won't mention any names, it was not Winter Haven, but it's a local high school, that often happened. Uh, Our cheers on Friday were silenced by Friday night. Well, said I won't mention names, Mulberry High School. (laughs) I think we won one game in my four years, (laughs) or one game each year. Well, this morning, the reason I say that is this morning, Jesus is doing that very thing with his parable. Uh, With this parable and with all the parables that he's been telling up to this point, really he is doing two things. Two things that he's been doing in everything that he does throughout his ministry. He is exalting the humble and he is humbling the exalted. He's letting the air out of the big giant religious pep rally that many of the religious people had. But yet he is also uh, helping those bruised reeds, those barely smoking candles so that he doesn't put them out harshly. And this morning, uh, we, are, we are reaching a point where, where Jesus is, the story of Jesus in Matthew is reaching a climax at this point. Uh, you guys, as well as at Trinity, we've been following through the story of Matthew, and then we, we hit a series on the parables. And if you'll, you'll remember, at this point in Matthew, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem for the very last time in his ministry. And it was a climactic entrance, wasn't it? Jesus had, had ridden in and in a fulfillment of a prophecy on a donkey into the city. And he had been greeted by adults and children alike. And the sounds and the shouts of praises, Hosanna in the highest, had filled the religious people's ears and had made them very angry. And Jesus, when he came into his city, though he came in great pomp, and though he came uh, in uh, being lauded by the crowds, he also came with a heavy heart. A heavy heart. And the reason Jesus had a heavy heart is because he came to his city, the city that God had built. And when he was coming to his city, he was looking for something. He was looking for fruit. He was looking for the fruit of the work of God through all the years. And did he find it? He found precious little of it. So if you look in your Bibles with me, right in the section leading up into our our passage this morning, you'll see Jesus does a couple of very important things when he first enters Jerusalem. In verse 12, he cleanses the temple, symbolic of the fact that the people had drifted away from the word of God and faithfulness to God, and he's restoring them to that. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer in verse 13, but you've made it a den of robbers. Then in verse 18, Jesus does something else very symbolic and very provocative. It says when he entered into the city, he was hungry in verse 18, and then he saw a fig tree by the wayside, and he went to it, but when he found nothing on it but only leaves, he cursed it so that it withered, and the disciples were amazed. What was he doing there? Was he just angry because he didn't get a fig? No, it was symbolic, just like when he went into the temple and cleansed it. He was showing the people that that God was angry, that God was upset because of all the work and, and of all the word that he had sent time and again to his people to build the city Jerusalem, and precious little fruit had come out of it. This morning, I think, uh, we'll see something, that a parable that, that, follows on from the parable we saw last week. We saw one in verse 28 that Jesus had told the parable of the two sons. And the reason that he told it is that religious leaders had questioned Jesus' authority. Jesus cleansed the temple and he cursed the fig tree and they said, what gives you the authority to do these things? 
What makes you think you can just barge in here from up north in Galilee where nothing good comes from to barge in here and tell us who went to rabbi seminary how things ought to be working? And Jesus tells the story of the two sons. And, and the point we learned last week was that God is not impressed by empty lip service. But what God is looking for is the transformed heart. This morning in verse 33, the beginning of our passage, Jesus says, Hear another parable. And that word another signifies that it will be another one, but another one of the same kind. That Jesus is following the same thought out to its logical conclusions. This morning he tells another story placed in a vineyard, but this time not about a vineyard owner and his two sons, but a owner of a vineyard and his one son. And this owner of the vineyard and his one son were apparently of quite wealthy means because they had enough land to spare. And so they took some of their spared land and they planted a vineyard and they leased it out to these tenants. And the tenants were to care for it and to bring forth its fruit. And the tenants were allowed to live off the produce of the land, but they had to give a cut back to the man who owned it. And then you'll see in, in verse 34, we'll see how when, when the man goes to collect the fruit, they respond so pridefully, so proudly. They, they withhold what's rightfully belonging to the owner. And then finally, Jesus questions them in verse 40, asking them, what do you think the owner should do? And in verse 41, they answer, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. Then in verse 42 and following, Jesus is going to apply the story to the lives of those who were listening that day. I think today it would be helpful as we go through this passage to ask two questions and to answer these two questions. But I think this story is going to really center on this one thing, that is pride. I think we're going to see that one of the reasons why Jesus comes into the vineyard of the Lord, so to speak, and finds so precious little fruit is because the pride of the people had choked it out. So this morning, the first question we'll ask is, what is pride? And the second question we'll ask is, what does God do or how does God deal with our pride? Let's ask the first question together. What is pride? First, I want you to notice in the story that Jesus is explaining and describing the work of God in the world. Look in verse 33. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Uh, Obviously, Jesus is not here speaking about agriculture. That's not his main point. Jesus instead is telling a parable, this parable almost like an allegory, where the owner of the vineyard is God, The tenants are his people. The servants are the prophets. And in doing this, it it might not seem to us at first reading that Jesus is speaking about God and his work in the world unless we first consider that when in, in using this imagery of the vineyard, Jesus is drawing threads out of the Old Testament to weave a tapestry for us. All you have to do is go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. If you have your Bible, you can leave your finger in Matthew 21 and go back to Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 2 rather. And there we'll see how this thread begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. It says that God created man in his own image. And it's very interesting what it says that God did. It says in, in Genesis 2, 8, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. The name of the second river is Gihon. And listen to what it says. The Lord, took, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
to work it and keep it. Jesus is drawing a thread from the very beginning of Scripture that when God first made us, he, he planted a garden. He planted a vineyard and he placed us in it. And see how wonderfully he had blessed our first parents. The, the, the passage describes flowing waters, delectable delights, gold and precious stones. Do you see the parallel with Jesus' parable? God had prepared at the beginning a place for man, and he prepared it so that they might tend it. This was the cultural mandate given to man when he was first created. We were called to fill the earth and to subdue it and cultivate it to the end that we would produce its fruit to the praise of God's glory. But the story of the first garden, you'll remember, does not end there, does it? For in the garden was not only man, but also the serpent. The serpent who had hatched up in his heart this idea of rebellion against God. And he began to sow the seeds of that rebellion in the mind of the first man and the first woman. Thus, our first parents were drawn away from God's voice. Through the enticement of the serpent, we learned there in the garden to resist God's authority and to trample his generous provision under our feet. Adam and Eve were the first human beings and the first wicked tenants of God's good creation. They refused to give God his fruit. They decided to claim that fruit as their own, as coming from them and belonging to them. And that's the first thread that Jesus is pulling and weaving into this parable. But the story doesn't end there. God does not instantaneously wipe humanity off the face of the earth at that point. Instead, God begins his great work of redemption. The first covenant having been broken because Adam broke the terms, God then undertakes a new covenant, the covenant of grace. And throughout the scripture, that covenant and that bond with his people is also described as a vineyard. God's threat on that day was, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But that was not the end. Instead, he chooses a single family line. And you can trace the work of God through this family line. God promises that in this family line would come one, an offspring, through whom the whole earth would be blessed. And consider how God took this this little family, and it starts as a small seed, and he plants it and grows it and grows it until it fills the whole land. And it becomes a great nation in the earth. And consider how, how God dealt with this vineyard. Think about the tabernacle that God had given to them. And all of the, the, the garden imagery that's in the tabernacle. I don't know if you remember this, but in the tabernacle it was decorated all around with flowers and fruit and leaves. The purpose of this was, among many things, to remind them what God was doing in his covenant of grace. God was restoring them back to the garden where they had fallen. Because the garden is a symbol of God's presence with his people, his bond to them. And it having been broken, now God is restoring it through a mediator our Lord Jesus Christ. Another clear example of this, a very striking example, is Isaiah chapter 5. And it would be great if you could go to Isaiah chapter 5 and look, because it's very, very similar to what Jesus is saying in our text this morning. And this one comes all the way towards the end of the history of God's people that he had formed right at the beginning. And at this point, the people of God had, had suffered through long years of their own unfaithfulness. Cycle after cycle after cycle of rejecting God. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah takes up a song for his people. The song of the vineyard. And he says this in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. 
and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. And for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Do you see the parallels between the passage that we're reading this morning and this one in Isaiah? Both Isaiah and Christ are using the same image. God established a people like planting a garden. And God poured into the garden fertilizer and water, gave it sufficient sunlight. And he expected delectable fruit from it. He expected grapes. But what he got was sour and poisonous or perhaps nothing at all. This morning, I would hope that in this section of, our, of the sermon, you would see two things. That you would see that God's work in the world, in creation and redemption, it reminds us and teaches us two things about God. First, that He is the owner of all things. And that He has all a power and authority. And second, that He is marvelously generous. Back in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus drives this point home just simply by calling God the owner of the vineyard. And even in verse 34, when he goes to get the fruit, it says he goes to get his fruit. And every other character is described as either a tenant or a servant under the lordship of this one owner of all things, to whom we owe everything that we have. The generosity part might be a little less hidden. But what the the owner of the vineyard is practicing here is is a practice that's often done in agrarian societies in the ancient world, sharecropping. He's practicing sharecropping, and sharecropping was a generous thing by definition. What would happen is is in an agrarian society, there would often be a great gulf between the haves and the have-nots, and there would be very, very little chance that you would ever cross over from one side to the other. And so some, some men who had a lot, maybe more than they needed, they would share some of what they had, some of the land with others who had not. And they would allow their families to come on the land and to keep it in exchange for food and sustenance for their family. And they would have to give a small portion of the profits back uh, to the owner of the vineyard. Jesus is driving home this point here that God, in his dealings with human beings, in his dealings with you, and in his dealings with me, is a generous owner. He is the owner, and therefore he has ultimate authority. And he is generous and gives us everything we've ever had. There is then no way that any of us can escape what Jesus has to say next in the parable. Every single one of us were created in the image of God and have received everything we've ever had from his hand. And even this morning, we're we're beneficiaries of his his work of grace, aren't we? As we sit and, and are called to worship because Jesus was sent into the world to become a mediator between God and fallen man. The second thing that Jesus does in the parable, starting in verse 34, is that he denounces the people's proud rejection of God's work. And here's where we'll really see the answer to that question. What is pride? Notice in verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. 
Notice the pride here. This is the definition of pride that Jesus is teaching us. That whereas God is the owner to whom we owe all of our allegiance, and God is generous to whom we owe infinite gratitude, we have done the exact opposite, haven't we? Instead of rendering back to God the fruit that is due to him, we have withheld it for ourselves. And that's how we have rejected his authority. It's a pride thing. And because God is generous, we have withheld our gratitude. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1 when he said that people, um, even though they knew God's existence because of the way the world was made, they neither acknowledged him as God, they did not acknowledge his authority, and they did not give thanks to him. What Jesus is saying here is the problem of human sin. It's pride, which is at the very core of what caused the first fall and what has continued to be the core of sin ever since. At this point, it's also worth noting who Jesus' audience is when he's telling the story. Was Jesus A, at the bar speaking to the drunkards, B, on the street corner speaking to the drug dealers and prostitutes, or C, was he in church on Sunday? And the answer to the question is he was in church on Sunday. Jesus was at the Passover feast, the highest religious day of the year in the holiest city in the world. And he tells this parable. This teaches us that the problem of pride can, yes, it can, take on the habit of an irreligious person. Okay, it can be total disregard of God to where you don't ever give ear to his word or his law. But, and perhaps even more wickedly, This pride can even take on the dress of a religious person. We see that with those who are are the religious leaders in Jerusalem at Jesus' day. What had they done? They had made religion into a pep rally for themselves to pump up their self-worth and to bring down others. And Jesus is here coming and popping the bubble that they had blown up in the midst of their religious pep rally. So what is pride? Pride is the human refusal to follow God's authority and to give God the gratitude that he's due. That leads us to our second question that I want to answer today, and that is how does God deal with pride? And there's some amazing things here. The first thing that I want you to notice is that God shows amazing patience in the face of the tenant's pride. Look again in verse 34. When the owner of the vineyard had sent his servants And in verse 35, when they beat one, killed another, and stoned another, what does he do in verse 36? Again, he sent other servants more than the first. Now, this should remind you of the Old Testament, shouldn't it? That God, in his dealings with Israel, after they had rejected prophet after prophet after prophet, coming to rebuke and correct and train them in righteousness, what did God do after that? He sent more prophets to rebuke, to correct, and to train in righteousness. And they did the very same thing to them. They rejected them all because they thought of religion as a pep rally and not as a time to be humbled so that they might receive the grace of God. And then in verse 37, it's the most shocking thing, I think, in the whole story. Finally, now at this point, if we had never read this story, this is the first day that we've ever read it, and Coming in the doors today, everybody got a, a blank three-by-five card. And I asked you, okay, fill in that sentence. What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Finally, what? Some of you might write, finally, the owner of the vineyard would come to his senses and send in the police and pulverize those, those wretches. Or finally, he would come to his senses and 
kick him out and send better, more worthy people into his vineyard. But what, what we would not have written, what I would never have guessed, is what Jesus actually says in the story. That finally, after all of the rejection, after all of those, that heinous sin of the tenants, finally he sent his son to them, saying, surely they will respect my son. Oh, the great, the love of God is manifested in those words, isn't it? That God, after all the rejection that we would give to him, the thing that he would do that would measure his love more than anything else is that he would send his one and only son. It really opens up to us. This parable opens up to us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And in that one word, the world is a world of wickedness, isn't it? From the very beginning, from the first parents that we ever had, mankind has only ever refused God's authority and withheld the gratitude due his name. And yet God sent his son to save wicked tenants and miserable wretches. The second thing that we see here, or rather, on that note of patience, a, a thing that I would like to, to draw your attention to is, is 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, you remember that, G, that Peter wants to apply this issue of patience to his readers, that God is patient. And, and Peter's living after the cross and after the resurrection and ascension. And there are people in, in Peter's church who were saying, you know, God is slacking. That God is supposed to be back by now. Jesus had promised to return and he hasn't returned. And, and Peter's great words, his famous words are this, that God is not slow as some men count slow. But God is patient towards you. He's withholding his judgment at this time. The 2,000 years that have elapsed since Jesus are also a testament to God's patience. That God is withholding because he doesn't desire for any of you to perish, but that all of you might reach repentance. And that leads us to Jesus' next point, because Peter doesn't stop there. Peter says, yes, God is patient. Yes, but the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. And and the world will be burnt up, he said, and all the deeds that are done on it will be finally and completely exposed. That's Jesus' next point. What does God do with pride first? He's very patient with it. And second, the patience of God, the day of God's patience, will not continue forever for the proud. Notice how Jesus makes this point very dramatically in verse 40. I love how Jesus does this. Instead of simply telling them, hey, God resists the proud, he asks them a question so that they could hear the truth from their own thinking and their own voice. He asks them this, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And notice what they said. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruit in their seasons. God will resist the proud. There is, this is a reality for every one of us this morning. God has promised that he will resist the proud. And each of us this morning, very shortly, we will all stand before God, the great owner of everything, and we will have to give an account of our lives. Our deeds will be exposed. The fruit of our lives will be inspected. This will happen when we die or when Christ returns. And Jesus in the story is asking us the question, are we ready for that meeting? 
Are we ready for that meeting? Or are we still obstinately and proudly refusing God's authority? And are we obstinately refusing to give him the thanks due his name? So far, we've seen that God is patient with proud sinners and that God will finally condemn and resist those who are in their pride. But Christ is also making a third point in this story. And he starts that in verse 42 as he begins to apply the lesson to his, to his hearers. And the point that he's making is that God not only is patient and not only will one day resist the proud, but God does his greatest work through the pride of men. Jesus sets this up by quoting from Psalm 118. Look in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? I love when he says that. And he says that often. And I love that he says it because he's speaking to people who are experts in the scriptures. Of course they had read the scriptures. Right? And in fact, if you just look back to the beginning of chapter 21, this is the very psalm that the people were singing when Jesus came into the city. Because this psalm includes Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the children were singing it. This was something that even Jewish children knew about. And Jesus said, have you never read? What's he asking? He's he's not asking, have you literally never read? But he's asking this, have you read? But then have you also done anything with what you've read? It's what he said to the disciples or the uh, Pharisees in in the, the book of John. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify to me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Then notice the quote that Jesus uses from that psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Uh, Here, Jesus, I believe, is doing a little play on words. Jesus, the language that he spoke was Aramaic, and in Aramaic, the word for stone and the word for son were very, very similar. Do you see why he's bringing up this quote? I've just told you about the son that the tenants rejected. Now I want to remind you of something God already talked about, the stone that the builders rejected. What happens to that stone? What happens to the stone that the builders rejected? And the builders, by the way, are the same as the tenants, right? These are those to whom God has entrusted his work. And in both stories, God, these people have rejected something. And what does God do with what they've rejected? He made it the cornerstone of his work. Uh, what is a cornerstone? Uh, the cornerstone is the first stone to be laid when you build a building. You lay that stone and you make sure it's a strong one. And then all the other stones that are built are cut to fit that stone. They're cut to fit it and then cemented to it. And when the building is all done, the weight of the building really centers and really comes to to bear upon that one stone. And what this is showing us is that God does his greatest work even through the pride of men. That was the conviction of the early church, wasn't it? When they stood up after Jesus had been crucified and raised and they said that Jesus had been delivered over into the hands of wicked men. So that they could abuse him wickedly. But this was according to the predetermined plan of God. That God used even wicked men to accomplish his purposes. And Jesus is looking them in the eye in the days before they are about to hand him over to wicked men. 
And he's saying, you are going to reject me. But I am the son and I am the stone. And God will highly exalt me and place me in a place in his plan that no one else could ever occupy. And in fact, if you aren't cut to fit me, and if you aren't cemented to me, then you will not be a part of God's building. God will take the kingdom away from you and give it to a people producing his fruit. This is the marvelous work of God in redemption, isn't it? That God would turn our sin on its head. That even in our sin, he would produce the glories of redemption. And this marvelous work of God is the only hope we have in our fallen condition. Look again at verse 43, what Jesus says. Because there's a promise in verse 43 that you might not notice. Therefore, the kingdom of God, the negative thing is, that it will be taken away from you. But then there's a promise, a positive. It will be given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus is saying here that there will be, God will have a people that produce the fruits. The plan of God will go on. They may kill the son, but God will only go to the trash heap and pick up that stone and place it as the centerpiece of his work. Now, some of us in here may be at this point raising an objection. In our hearts, maybe someone's raising this objection, but, but I'm not trying to kill Jesus. I'm not violently opposed to Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. Jesus is okay with me. I'm not going to stumble over the stumbling stone, as it says in verse 44, and the one who falls on this, on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Well, think about what it means to stumble over something or to fall over something. Have you ever seen someone stumble over something? And then you ask them, what happened? Do they ever say, well, I was, just, I was staring too hard at it and stumbled right over it? Do they ever say that? Do they ever say, well, I was just noticing it too carefully, paying too much attention to it? No, it's always, I didn't even see it was there. Didn't even notice it. My mind was on something completely different. So I would like to encourage you, if you're objecting that I'm not adamantly opposing Jesus, that it's not always about adamantly opposing Jesus, is it? That the things we stumble over are often the things we don't even pay any attention to at all. The things that take back seat in our lives. Those are the very things that could end up crushing us, as Jesus says here in this. So Jesus is promising that there will be a people producing his fruits. Well, the question has to rise in your heart as it does in mine. We've just learned about what pride is, and we've just learned that it's the problem that every single one of us have. And we've just learned that though God is patient, one day he will resist the proud eternally and finally. So how is it that there will ever be any people How is it that there will ever be any people who produce the fruits of God's kingdom? And the answer is that God himself humbles the proud. This is the last thing that God does with our pride is he humbles the proud so that he might pour his grace out upon them. I know I flipped a lot through the Bible today, but there's one more place that I would like to take you. And that is to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because Paul's comments on this are, are better than mine could ever be. So I'd like to read them to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul is going to describe here the attitude of sinful man towards Christ. They're going to reject him. But then the marvelous thing that God does in order to turn our hearts from rejecting to accepting. 
chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, the message of Jesus, this marvelous work of God, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Skip down a few verses. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And earlier he had said, the part that I skipped, the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which, catch what he says, same thing that Jesus is saying, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. Do you notice what he's saying here? He's saying that when any of us, all of us, when we are confronted with the message of Christ, the marvelous work of God will respond in one of two ways. Either it will seem like a terrible bit of foolishness that just gets in our way. We'll stumble all over it. We don't have time for it. We oppose it, or we will greet it as the very thing that we need most, and we will humbly and fully embrace it. What makes the difference? What sets apart those who who gratefully embrace the work of God and those who adamantly oppose it? Well, Paul had said it, didn't he? He said, to those who are called. It's the great and powerful and mighty call of God, isn't it? Throughout the scriptures, you can trace this out, that God's call is, comes to people often unexpectedly, and it completely reshapes their life. Think about Abraham. He's living one place one day. God called him, and he moved to a place he didn't even know existed. Then Moses, one day he's tending sheep, and God calls him, and the next day he's toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. And Lazarus, he was dead. And Christ called him, and the next thing he knows, he's alive again. The call of God is powerful. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it as the effectual calling. It describes it as effectual because it works, because it's powerful. It does what God intends it to do. And the effectual calling includes three things, three things that God does in our hearts. First, he convinces us of our sin and misery. Second, he enlightens us in the knowledge of who Christ the Savior is, the stone that the builders rejected. And thirdly, he enables us to embrace him as he's offered in the gospel message. In other words, God humbles us from being proud tenants to being humble people who throw ourselves upon the son that he sent in our place to be cast out, crucified, and rejected so that we might be accepted. The image of the cornerstone is very, very helpful here. God has placed Jesus, the cornerstone, in the centerpiece of his work. And for us to be saved, we must be chiseled to fit to him and cemented to him. This work begins at conversion with calling. At calling, we are initially chiseled and cemented to Christ. We are humbled to recognize that God owns us, and we are humbled to see our pride and to see the miserable death that we deserve. And then we also see that God has graciously sent his Son to undergo the death that we deserve in our place. And out of faith and joy, we throw ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We willingly submit to his chisel, which sounds to me like awfully painful work. And we are submitted to Christ forever. This work continues to the end of our lives as we're shaped more and more into the image of Christ. And finally, one day, 
when we see him face to face, instead of judgment, instead of this final word of resistance against the proud, we will taste unbridled joy and we will become like him exactly as he is, finally. This morning, I know that in this room, we're probably talking to different types of people. And I want to put two lines of examination to all of us as, by way of application before we close. And the first question I would like to put to us all is, have you been called by God this way? Have you been humbled? Have you seen your sin and misery and seen the beauty of this marvelous work of God? If you have not, please take this parable to heart. Please own up to your rebellion and fly to Christ, the stone and the sun rejected in your place. Submit yourself to be chiseled to fit him. If you have been called this morning, thank God. His work with you has been generous beyond belief. His patience with you generous. Ask God to further chisel you to match Jesus, his chosen and precious stone. All of us this morning, whether Christian or non, can examine ourselves along these two lines. What are we doing with the gospel? What are we doing this day with the gospel? And two, where is pride evident in my life? In what ways am I resisting the ownership of God? And in what ways am I unthankful for his great generosity? And above all this morning, we can remember that Jesus teaches us about two things. Our pride and how heinous it is. And God's work to save us from it. My friends, our need could not be greater. And his work could not be more perfectly suited to our need. It is truly the marvelous Work of God. Please pray with me. Most gracious God and Father, I thank you for your word. Your word, Lord, like a chisel, which chisels us to fit with Christ. And by your spirit, you use your word to to cement us to him, to unite us to him. Today, Lord, I pray that we would be thus united to him. That we would be shaped after his image. So that we would willfully submit to your great ownership of all things and that we would render you the thanksgiving and the praise that you so deserve. God, I pray that that in the day when, when all else falls away and all the deeds of this world will be exposed, that in our hearts will be seen the work of God within, the work of God to call us and reshape us and humble us from our pride. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in the name of Christ, the stone that the builders rejected, that has become the very cornerstone. Amen. I'd like to say thank you again for having me this morning. It's been a a real pleasure. And if your faith is in Christ, you can know that the stone that the builders rejected was rejected that you might be accepted into his building. Please receive his grace, the word of his grace, and the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.